0: Hebrews 4, 8 to 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us enter into a time of prayer and confession. Dear Heavenly Father, What a most glorious paradox. You're calling me to diligently work, to invest great effort, to strive with all my might to enter your rest. I know my performance-based heart well enough to appreciate why you framed this freeing admonition with so much irony. Work hard to rest well. Work hard to cease working. Indeed, the gospel contradicts the fundamental way I've been trained to approach every sphere of life—athletics, education, finances, career, reputation, everything. Do it the good old-fashioned way. Earn it. You'll get what's coming to you. God helps those that help themselves. These mantras have been my motivation and method and my madness. But holy and gracious Father, respect, with respect to having a relationship with you— I'm so glad I didn't get what's coming to me. For you've given that to Jesus on the cross. What comes to me in the gospel is something I neither deserved nor could ever earn. Your permanent favor resting on me. There is no greater rest than to know you are resting and rejoicing in your great love over me. None. Jesus, you created the world in six days and the inner day Sabbath rest. You did everything necessary for my salvation and the restoration of the entire cosmos. And then, in a most profound sense, you rested again. It is finished, was your dying cry of life-giving hope. Now it's mine to believe the gospel, not work the program. I have heard and I will continue to hear the gospel, and by your grace I will continue to combine that hearing with the faith you give me. Jesus, that glorious admixture is my rest in this life, in the life to come. So very amen, I pray. In the wonders of your matchless name and finished work. Amen.
1: I met one of my best
0: friends in
1: life during seminary. His name is Ross, and we met during our first semester Greek language class, Elements of Greek, in the fall of 1999. We are both back row people. We love to sit on the back row, and that's where we met on the back row of Dr. J. Smith's Elements of Greek class. And if it weren't for Ross, I probably would not have survived seminary. I can tell you so much about my friend Ross. We have so many great war stories from seminary, like how we used to meet at Starbucks at 5 a.m. so we could cram for Hebrew vocabulary quizzes Or how when I worked at Starbucks, I used to make him a drink that I called the Mark of the Beast. I called it that because it had six shots of espresso, six ounces of milk, and six pumps of white chocolate mocha. Six, 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 the Mark of the Beast. The perfect drink for any seminary student, married with kids, working two to three jobs, and going to school full time. I could tell you about how Ross was accused of plagiarism because he and another student turned in an identical paper, and how Ross was accused of copying the other student's paper because the other guy was well known on campus by students and professors as being this upright, godly man, so everybody just assumed that Ross is the one who cheated. He didn't. Ross had loaned his paper to this guy because this guy asked for his paper to kind of see how he should work his paper out, what it would look like. So he gave his paper to the guy, and it turns out that this guy, the so-called spiritual leader on campus, ended up copying Ross's paper word for word and just putting his name on the front. And it took several meetings where Ross was persistently accused of being the cheater and which he persistently denied Until finally, the other guy confessed to plagiarism. Things are not always what they seem. Or I could tell you how Ross had to put his car into gear with a screwdriver after he started it. Ross had this old 1985 Plymouth Reliant K station wagon. And it was burnt orange. It was a car that only a poor seminary student could love. And the car had an electrical short, so it kept grounding itself out on the shifter cable. So since Ross was a poor seminary student who couldn't afford to get it fixed, he had to improvise. And so Ross had to disconnect the shifter cable and manually shift the gears under the hood with a screwdriver in order to make it go. And so with the parking brake on, he would start the car, lift the hood, and shift it from park to drive. Then he would slam down the hood, and as it rolled forward, he would jump in and release the parking brake and then be off on his merry way. Needless to say, he always pulled into a parking lot in such a way so he would never have to use reverse I remember the first time I saw this with my own eyes. We had parked in the same parking lot and we're talking to one another about the class we just come out of and walking to our cars. And he turned to me and he said, can you help me start my car? And I said, of course. And I just assumed that his battery was dead and that he needed a jump. But then he proceeded to tell me to sit behind the wheel to start the car and then to put my foot on the brake while he lifted the hood and put it into gear. And then he said to get out, and then imagine my surprise when it started to roll. So picture me getting out and trying not to get run over by this 1985 burnt orange Plymouth Reliant K station wagon, and then picture Ross jumping in like one of the boys from the Dukes of Hazzard. There was never a dull moment with Ross in seminary. As I mentioned, we both worked several jobs and had kids, and one of his jobs uh, you guys get this this story and maybe a few more because we have a little bit more time. That's that's one of the joys of being in the second service. You know, I can tell when the sermon doesn't go long enough and what I can add. So, maybe a few more stories of Ross. I told them this one, but I might tell you one or two more. Uh, He worked, one of his many jobs is he delivered uh, newspapers for the Dallas Morning News. So he threw papers and he would throw all night, and then we'd meet at 5 a.m., cram for Hebrew vocabulary quizzes, and then go to class. And so Ross was exhausted, stressed out, tired, and we're sitting in this Hebrew class. It was called, we called it kamikaze Hebrew or suicide Hebrew because you took two semesters of Hebrew in one semester. Crazy people do this in seminary. I don't know why it was a good idea, but we did it. And so we come into class one day, and he's thoroughly exhausted. And there was this guy in our class who was single, wasn't married, no kids. I don't think he worked a job, and I think his family paid for his education. And this guy sits down in class, and he says, I think I'm the busiest guy in seminary. And Ross snapped. I mean, he lost it, and he jumped up to get in this guy's face. And several of us are, like, holding him back and it's like, let it go, man, it's not worth it. Sometimes Ross would make PowerPoints in class. McDonald's had this, like, two two for two, two double cheeseburgers for $2, and we'd be sitting in class, and he'd, he'd make a PowerPoint and lean it over to me, and he'd press play, and it would go two, four, two. And then there would be this picture of this, like, double cheeseburger, and he's, he was saying, like, as soon as class is over, you want to go get one, or sometimes he'd make a Krispy Kreme PowerPoint, and just kind of turn his computer to me, and hit play on that PowerPoint, and like, these Krispy Kreme pictures would come up, and so we would immediately leave class, and drive to Krispy Kreme, and the light was on, so we knew we could get a, we're poor seminary students, we knew we could get one free glazed donut, warm and hot, and so we did that, and we would go there, and one time, SMU, Southern Methodist University, is right down the road from the Krispy Kreme, and so as these seminary students, we, with our Krispy Kreme donuts in hand go cruising through SMU and Ross rolls down the windows of his car and he starts pumping some m M&M, m Lose Yourself, if you know the song, and he's you know revving his car and all these SMU students are looking at us with these Krispy Kreme donuts in our hand, not knowing that we're future pastors. <laughs> Never a dull moment with Ross in seminary. But the one story about Ross that has stuck with me actually has deep spiritual implications. He told me one time during seminary, His family was going on summer vacation, driving to Austin, Texas. And they got in the car and were driving. And his daughter Maggie said, those famous words that we all know, are we there yet? And Ross said, Maggie, are we where yet? And she replied, are we at the vacation yet? Ross tells the story this way. That question, are we at the vacation yet, struck me as the heart of what she really wanted to know. At five years old, the idea of vacation is abstract. It was hard to get her mind around. She wanted to know if we were there yet. Austin was the destination. Austin was where we were going. But what she cared about the most was whether we were at the vacation. I turned to her and I said, Maggie, yes, we are there. We are at the vacation. The vacation started at the drive-in at McDonald's. We are all together. We have all of our luggage. All the elements of the vacation are here. We just haven't arrived at the destination. We are out of the routine of our normal day. At this moment, life as you know it is different. Life as you know it is vacation. And by the way, if you want to know, we will be in Austin in about four hours. He says, just because we weren't in Austin didn't mean that the vacation hadn't started And just because we haven't seen the kingdom yet, doesn't mean that we haven't begun eternity. And that's exactly how it is with our Sabbath rest. The final Sabbath rest that is talked about in Hebrews chapter 4 and that we talked about last week. That Sabbath rest is future and yet we can still enjoy it now. As I mentioned last week, there's this already-not-yet aspect to Christianity and to our Sabbath rest. The eternal Sabbath rest that we await on the new earth is not yet. But there's this already component. We can rest now. We are on a journey as pilgrims and as exiles in this world we're on a journey to see Jesus but we don't have to wait until God makes all things new in order to feel like our vacation has started yes much of our future hope lies in the future but we're on vacation even now we're on vacation right now we don't have to wait until that day we get to enjoy God's Sabbath rest today we're on vacation, if you will, right now. We're on a Sabbath rest right now. And that's what the rest of the rest of Hebrews 4 is about. And what we'll see today in these verses is that it takes some work to remember that we're on a Sabbath rest right now. It takes work to remember that we're on a Sabbath rest. Right now, And so what we'll see today is that we have to work hard to rest well. We have to work hard to rest well. And what the preacher of Hebrews wants the Hebrews to know is that they have to strive to enter the rest that awaits them in heaven. That's what we saw last week. We have to strive to enter into the rest that is already ours. We have to work in order to rest. As odd as that sounds... We have to strive and use our spiritual muscles in order to enter that future rest and also to enter into that rest and enjoy that rest even right now. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's our daily work. We have to strive To believe the outrageous good news of the gospel for sinners like us. So the work that we have to do now is one of belief. That's our main work now. One of belief. We have to continue to believe the good news of the gospel. And we can enjoy that Sabbath rest even now before we ever get to heaven. We can partake of that rest even now as we wait for our eternal rest. So look at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Hear the words of the good God that we serve. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, remember what we saw last week, the first generation of Israelites that were under Moses' leadership that came out of slavery in Egypt, they did not believe the good news. They did not believe the gospel message that they heard. The same message, same gospel that we hear, they did not believe the gospel message and therefore they did not enter into God's rest in Canaan, the promised land. Instead, they roamed the wilderness for 40 years. However, the next generation of Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, they did enter into the promised land, into Canaan, but here's the difference. It was not the eternal Sabbath rest of God that they enjoyed. It was a temporal rest in Canaan, rest from their enemies, but it was not the final rest of the new earth when God makes everything new. We also saw last week that the rest that is offered in the gospel is a twofold rest. So whether you were alive in the first generation that came out of slavery in Egypt under Moses' leadership or whether you were alive under Joshua's leadership or as we saw last week whether you were alive under David's leadership or even if whether you were alive in the time of the Hebrews or whether you are alive today, the Sabbath rest of God that is offered in the gospel is always a twofold rest. First, it offers you eternal rest. It offers you eternal rest, meaning it offers you resurrection with a new glorified body where you will glorify and enjoy the triune God for all of eternity on the new earth. And as we saw last week, sickness will be no more and sin will be no more. And I cannot wait for that day. That's what we saw last week. That's the not yet of the already not yet. But the hope of the gospel is that there is an already aspect that we can experience right now. The hope of the gospel is not that we we just long for this future day of rest as if we never get to experience any rest on this side of eternity. No, Jesus offers us a foretaste of that rest that awaits us. He offers us a foretaste even now. That's the already of the already not yet. We can rest now. Now. The gospel offers us rest now. And that's good news. And that's the second way that we are offered rest in the gospel. Look at verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The final eternal Sabbath day of rest awaits us, but God calls us to rest right now. We're called to rest from our works just as God rested from his. And this is the good news of the gospel that the Hebrews were forgetting. They were trying to earn God's favor trying to earn his love through their good works trying to earn his forgiveness through their performance through their works through their obedience to the law and it was killing them they actually traded these words it is finished they traded those words it is finished for do more try harder they traded this word rest They traded rest for get busy, buckle down and try your hardest to curry God's favor. And it was killing them. And if they persisted in it, then it would prove that they never truly believed and therefore they would never enter God's Sabbath rest. They were in danger of doing what the first generation of Israelites did by not believing the gospel. Now listen, if you try to earn your way to God by trying to be good enough, it will kill you. If you try to earn your way to God, you try to just be good enough, I promise you, it will kill you. Or it will make you go crazy. If you get on that performance treadmill, you will die. It will kill you. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot earn his favor through what you do for him. Trust me, you'll never be good enough. Why? Because God demands perfection. God demands perfection from every single one of us. His law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, his law demands that we be perfect, that we keep it perfectly. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew five forty eight when he said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when you hear that, you're either struck by that and saying, I can't do that, Or if you're crazy enough, you say, I'll take you at your words, Jesus, and I'll be perfect and good enough. But you can never be good enough. And so the good news of the gospel is that rest is offered now to those who believe. You can rest secure that it is finished. You can rest secure that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can rest that he has removed your sins from you, as far away as the east is from the west, you can rest that Jesus has thrown your sins into the depths of the sea. That's the gospel rest that is offered now. Today, that means then that there's no more earning God's love. There's no more performing for him, which is what we do, right? We perform for him. Like, look at me, Father. See, I'm so good. I haven't missed a quiet time since January. It's May 1st. It's what we do. We perform for him, thinking, oh, now he'll love me. Now I have his favor. He's not impressed with you. He was only impressed with his son, Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law. So performing for him to get his favor, performing for him to get his love, those days are gone. All that remains is that we believe, that we believe the good news, that we rest in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We rest in his performance for us, not our performance for him. We rest. John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in you. When you are most satisfied in Him. And I believe that with all my heart. But I've told you before, I've tweaked John Piper's words to this God is most glorified in you when you are most sabotaged in Him. Yes, sabotaged is a word, it means to keep the Sabbath, it means to rest. So God is most glorified us when we are resting in him, when we are resting in the finished work of Jesus. But that rest does not mean that no work is involved. Please understand that when we speak of experiencing rest right now and when the preacher of Hebrews speaks of rest, it does not mean that no work is involved On the contrary, you have to fight to believe this good news. You have to fight to rest. You have to fight to believe the gospel that you preach to yourself every day. Just like Dallas Willard said, which Pastor Greg quoted several weeks ago in his sermon, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. When the preacher of Hebrews says that we are called to a Sabbath rest, he does not mean that we're called to a life of passivity. He doesn't mean that no effort is involved in our lives. I mean, my goodness, the older I get, it takes effort just to get out of bed in the morning. Amen? It takes effort to open my Bible. It takes effort to open my mouth to pray. It takes effort and work to stay busy making disciple, making disciples, which is what we're all about as a church. So Christianity is not passive. Grace is not opposed to effort. But it is opposed to earning. And that is exactly what the Hebrews were losing sight of. They were trying to earn God's favor through their efforts. And they were losing sight of the gospel. Is there effort involved? Yes, absolutely. You have to strive to rest. You have to strive to believe that no amount of striving will curry you favor with God. You have to fight for belief and you have to fight unbelief. And that's exactly why the Israelites under Moses' leadership did not enter into God's rest. It was because of unbelief. And so what we need is belief. We need to change our thinking, which is exactly Paul's point in Romans 6.11 when he says this, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's how Jerry Bridges explains what Paul is saying in Romans 6.11. And this quote comes from his book, The Discipline of Grace, which I highly recommend to you. The church staff is currently reading through it. And you can see that in our church newsletter as we go through a chapter each week. It's one of the best books on learning how to strive to rest. It's one of the best books on understanding God's role and our role in the pursuit of holiness. Well, here's what Jerry Bridges says about Romans 6.11. Actually, verse 11, he says, is an imperative, a statement of command. But it is an exhortation to believe something, not to do something. We are to count on or believe the fact that we actually did die to the guilt and consequent dominion of sin. We are to believe that we have truly been set free. The Hebrews were trying to do something to enter into that rest when they should have been believing something. We have to strive, we have to work to believe something first. We have to strive to believe that no amount of striving will curry us favor with God. We have to work hard to rest well. And that's exactly what the preacher of Hebrews says next. Look at verse 11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We have to fight to believe the good news. We have to resist sin. We have to rehearse the gospel. We're not called to passivity. We're called to fight to believe the promises of God. And if we stop fighting, if we stop striving to enter that rest, we may end up proving that we never really believed at all. Now, I'm not saying that you can, quote, unquote, lose your salvation. Because trust me, if we could lose our salvation, we would. We are kept by God's power. So once we are born again, we are regenerated. We stay that way. We can't lose our salvation. We believe in the perseverance of the saints here at Grace. So we're not saying that you can be a Christian and then not be a Christian. We don't believe that at all. But if we stop believing the gospel, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, we will end up like those Hebrews who came out of slavery in Egypt. That's what happened to the first generation of Israelites mentioned in Psalm 95. They did not enter into God's rest because they did not believe. And what exposed their unbelieving hearts? It was the word of God. The word of God exposed their unbelief. And that's the word that is mentioned here in verses 12 through 13. He's talking about Psalm 95. Psalm 95, the psalm that gets repeated over and over again in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, that psalm is the word of God. That is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the word that he's talking about. The word that he's been quoting in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is Psalm 95. So in its immediate context, the word that divides and exposes, in its immediate context, he's talking about Psalm 95. In the broader context, we know that the word is Jesus because what did the preacher say in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1? God spoke to our fathers a long time ago through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us in his Son. So in the broader context, the word is Jesus. But in the immediate context of chapters 3 and 4, that word is Psalm 95 that he's quoted numerous times. And the preacher refers to Psalm 95 again because he wants the Hebrews to realize that God's word divides and exposes who we are. The Hebrews are being called to pick which side they're on. Are they with Moses and the law trying to earn God's favor and love? Trying to earn righteousness? Or are they with Jesus and the gospel? If they return to the law to be justified, if they return to the old covenant with all of its types and shadows, if they return to the sacrificial system to find forgiveness of sins, then they will prove that they did not truly believe. They will prove that the word exposed their hearts, exposed their thoughts, exposed their intentions. And that's why they are being warned against going back to Moses. But the question you should be thinking is, why in the world would they return to Moses? Why would they want to return to Moses? Why would they want to leave the rest that was being offered them in the gospel? Here's the answer. I think it's because of persecution and suffering. Remember what we looked at last week? We quoted chapter 10. They were suffering. People were being put in prison. They would go visit their brothers and sisters in Christ who were in prison. Their homes would be looted. Things would be taken away from them. They were suffering. So ever since these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers, ever since they came to Jesus, all they've known is suffering and persecution. Ever since they left their traditional Jewish upbringing, they were suffering severe persecution. And that's why earlier in chapter 10, they are encouraged to not give up attending church with other believers because they need the encouragement to press on. What does the preacher say right before he reminds them of the persecution that they faced when they first believed? Right before he talks about the persecution, what does he say? In Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, he says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. They were being reminded not to give up worship on the Sabbath, on Sunday. Some were neglecting to meet on Sunday for church, and they were missing out on gospel exhortation and gospel fellowship. They were missing out on being encouraged to press on in spite of the persecution that they were facing. They were missing out on on stirring one another up to love and good works. And did you catch what the preacher says at the end of verse 25? He says, you do this all the more, gather together all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? That's eternity. The day when we will be with Jesus The day when we will get new glorified bodies. The day when we will never sin again. The day when we will finally be who God created us to be. The day when we will finally and forever glorify and enjoy the triune God. The day when we will finally enter that long-awaited day of Sabbath rest. And so what does the preacher say that these believers need now while they wait for that day? They need weekly gospel recalibration, weekly gospel refreshment on the Sabbath, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day at church with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Please understand this, Grace. The Sabbath, Sunday, the Lord's Day is an opportunity to be encouraged every single week. Worshiping God together as a church family here at Grace on the Sabbath every Sunday is an opportunity for you to be encouraged when you have doubts and when you have fears. Once a week you have an opportunity to get recalibrated with the gospel, to get refreshed with the gospel, and to drown out the voices on social media, to drown out the voices on the news, and if you're like me, to drown out the voices in your own head. So why miss this? Why miss church? The Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift from a good God to show you that you can rest and be refreshed physically, and spiritually, and be reminded of your future every single week, every single Sunday. Once a week, we can be reminded collectively about eternity. So why miss this? Why would you want to miss this? We all need weekly Sabbath gospel exhortations, especially when we are being persecuted. Listen, if persecution and suffering increase in our nation, and I'm not a prophet by any means, but I expect it to at this point. When I watch the news, when I get online, I think suffering and persecution are on their way to America. If persecution and suffering increase in our nation, I hope I'm wrong, but if they do, then weekly worship with your church family is going to be the most important time of your week. In fact, I would argue that it is right now. What you and your family need most every week is worship with your church family at church. What you and your family need the most every single week worship with your church family at church. That's the most important time of your family's week. Gathering here and hearing about Jesus. And that's what the preacher says in chapter 10, right before he talks about the Hebrews being thrown in prison and suffering persecution. Let me read it again, Hebrews ten twenty five. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, And I think he could have named names, but he didn't. He's he's a gracious pastor and preacher, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, like Bob and Harry and Sally. He didn't. But he says, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see the day drawing near, as you see the promised land of eternity, as you see heaven drawing near weekly Sabbath worship to remind you and to recalibrate you and to refresh you as you endure suffering and persecution in a fallen, broken world. So let me ask you this morning, are you stressed out about America? Are you stressed out about what's happening in our country? Are you worked up over the presidential election? You don't like the candidates being offered? I'm not sure anybody does. Maybe you do. Don't come up and tell me your favorite person. It's okay. I like King Jesus. But are you worked up over the presidential election? You worked up about terrorism, ISIS, bombings? Are you weary from all the talk about who can and can't use which restroom? Has life in 2016 got you all worked up? Let me give you some good news today. God gave you a gift. He gave you a gift present. God gave you one day a week to get refreshed and recalibrated. He gave you the Sabbath so that you could gather with your brothers and sisters and get recalibrated with the gospel. He gave you the Sabbath as a gift to rest, to spend the day worshiping God and resting to save you from running around and exhausting yourself, which is exactly what we do, isn't it? We just go and go and go. We work hard all week, get up on Saturday and we just go go go. We get up on Sunday and we go go go. And then guess what? Here comes Monday again. I'm tired of meeting Monday. Comes every Monday. You're back again. It's like Monday you were just here a few days ago. You're already back again and we got to go back to work and do this. God gave you Sabbath. He gave you a gift, a day to save you from yourself, to save you from running around and thoroughly exhausting yourself. Why would you want to miss it? Sabbath is a gift, a gift from a good God who wants you to enjoy His rest, to rest in the finished work of His Son, Jesus. And if you take Sabbath rest seriously, if you take Sabbath rest seriously, God will give you extra vacation days. Did you know that? Now I have your attention. Now you're all sitting up and it's like, I got to hear what the preacher's saying. If you take Sabbath rest seriously, God will give you extra vacation days. If you observe the Sabbath, you get extra vacation days. This is proof that God is good. God loves vacation days. Would you like some extra vacation days this year? Well, guess what? Sabbath rest offers you that. Ray Ortland says this The point of the Sabbath is a dress rehearsal for a future eternity of glad rest in God. But in our frantic modern world, the Sabbath offers wisdom that has lasted since the beginning. It is not written on our calendars as much as we are built into its calendar. It seems to be part of the God-created rhythm for weekly human flourishing. If we did set apart one day each week for rejuvenation in God, we would immediately add to every year over seven weeks of vacation. And not for whatever, but for worship, for community, for mercy, For an afternoon nap, now I have your attention, don't I? He continues, and for reading and thinking and for lingering around the dinner table with good jokes and tender words and personal prayers. If you observe Sunday, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, and you take a day to worship and rest, that adds up to over seven weeks of vacation every single day year if that is not proof that god is good i don't know what is try adding that to your gospel presentation next time somebody should make a bumper sticker or a t-shirt that says come to jesus he will give you seven extra weeks of vacation put that on a t-shirt put that on a coffee mug and i guarantee you somebody will ask you about it why because we're all tired we're all worn out. We go and 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 Monday morning comes again and we just want a break. And God knew that we would do that so he came up with a vacation plan for humanity. It's called the Sabbath. Would you like seven extra weeks of vacation? Celebrate the Sabbath. Come to church on Sunday. Fellowship in gospel community. Sing your heart out to Jesus. Hear the gospel preached. Observe and partake of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Get refreshed and go home and take a nap, which is what I'm going to do today. I mean, a nap, I know what the word holy means. It means to set apart On Sunday, my nap is holy. It is set apart. This is my time, and my kids know if we wake Dad up, then we're going to go see Jesus. (laughs) Celebrate the Sabbath and take a good nap and read a good book and show mercy to those who need it and linger around the dinner table with good jokes and tender words and personal prayers, why in the world would you want to miss out on this? Why miss the gift of Sabbath rest? Why give up seven extra weeks of vacation every single year? Why miss this opportunity together with your church family and hear about Jesus? Hear about forgiveness of your sins to hear about heaven and to hear that it is finished. Listen, it won't just happen naturally because we are a go nonstop stop people. So it will take work and you will have to work hard to rest well. You will have to work hard at going to bed early so you won't be tempted to sleep in on Sunday. And you will have to strive to get your family here every week because I know the temptation of the Central Coast. We have so much that's competing with Sabbath worship. The beach, the hills, hiking, sports, you name it. We've got a thousand things competing with the Sabbath rest, the gift that God offers to us. And if you happen to work on the Sabbath, as some people have to, you need to find another day in the week to rest. We all need rest. We all need rest. Sabbath. So why miss joining your church family where you can be reminded each week that you have to fight to rest? Why miss being reminded each week that you need to strive to rest from trying to earn God's grace, to rest from busyness, to rest from worry, to rest from stress about the future? Listen, you were made to enjoy the Sabbath, Christian. The Sabbath was made for you. The Sabbath was made for you as a human being so that you could rest. And if you don't believe me, then maybe Jesus can convince you. Mark 2.27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus made the Sabbath. Jesus came up with the idea of the Sabbath so that you and I could experience spiritual and physical rest Once a week. Jesus came up with the Sabbath so that we could get an extra seven weeks of vacation every year. You can't argue with Jesus. Oh, you may try, but listen, you're going to lose. Do you want to argue with your Savior? He knows what's best for you. So what you'll have to do is work hard to convince yourself that Jesus is correct. And that you need to take time to rest. It takes work to rest. I know it sounds strange but it takes work to rest. And one day we will rest forever. One day we'll enjoy eternal Sabbath rest. One day we'll see Jesus and we'll celebrate at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Until then, he has graciously given us the Lord's Supper to sustain our faith on the journey. Before we take a moment to prepare our hearts to eat and drink, would you first hear the gospel call that comes from Jesus out of Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light let's pray father we thank you that you are such a good gracious god not only have you taken care of our spiritual needs because we needed a foreign alien righteousness credited to us in order to come into your presence and to be made right with you. So you took care of the spiritual need that we had through your son, Jesus. But not only that, God, you care about the physical aspect to our lives as well. And you came up with this crazy idea called Sabbath. One day a week to just rest and you freely give us six to do whatever. To work our fingers to the bone. And then you graciously give us one day to just say, cool your engines and rest. And we thank you. It's out of your goodness and out of your wisdom that you've given that to us, Father. And we thank you that you've given us the Lord's Supper. That we can eat and drink and feed on Christ by faith, even now on this journey, knowing, Father, that it's a dress rehearsal for the wedding supper of the Lamb, for that day. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, Father, we confess our sins. We are sinners, and we have sinned in thought, in word, in deed, and in motive. And we ask you to forgive us. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. That you look at his life, death, and resurrection, and you are satisfied. And you call us to rest in that. And we do in this moment. Do it for our joy, for our rest, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.